Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson, co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. With me, as always, in tow is Brett Eichenberger and Jill Rimmen-Snyder. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hey. <laughs> it's good to see you guys here. We have another great guest. That's what you say on podcast. In our case, it happens to be true. We do have a great guest. And if you haven't been able to tell, this documentary, Flash of Beauty, has an order to it. It's about an hour and 40 minutes long, and we are going to be interviewing these guests as close as we can in that narration order, aren't we, Brett? Yep, that's right. We're, we're doing the best we can to really expand upon the film, um, seeing as how we really only had about you know, 90 minutes to two hours to work with, mm -hmm. we couldn't include everybody. So mm -hmm. this is a great opportunity as you, if you're new here to this podcast, to keep listening because you're going to hear some, some great stuff that didn't make the cut and it didn't make the cut because it wasn't great. It didn't make the cut because we didn't have the time. So mm -hmm. you're going to hear some really, really fun stuff coming up. Well, when it comes to guests, um, you know, Mel Skehan is our guest here. He's in the first part of this documentary. He's a Yakima tribal member, former forestry manager, and he grew up knowing about this phenomenon in a way that's so unique, so unusual to the typical Bigfoot story of a roadside crossing or someone that, uh, you know, was just happens to see a, a shadow dart in front of him that not not Mel Skehan. He uh, he and his grandfather, his great great grandfather kind of walked him into this world on the Yakima uh, reservation to uh, to deal with the reality of the subject matter. So, um, you know, for me, I'd heard about Mel as soon as I came into this field. Um, he was one of the first voices that I'd heard about. And he was the connection to Bob Gimlin, because as far as proximity is concerned, their families, the Gimlins and the Skahans, I believe there was this family connection that went back uh, a long while. So I'd heard about Mel uh, because I, I wanted to get access, first of all, to meeting Bob Gimlin. But then I found out that my girlfriend was doing outings with this uh, this dude, Mel Skahan. And he was really one of the first um, Native Americans that was willing to talk to me about his experiences. And he had some interesting stuff to uh, to talk about when I first met him. And we're going to talk about some of those those things, those interesting things in this interview coming up. Um, Jill, what did you think of our interview with Mel? Oh, you know, that Mel could, could be like a three hour interview instead. We, I felt like we were really limited, um, you know, and, and kind of like what Brett was saying, you know, in the documentary, 
we only have so much time to share, you know, so much information. And he had so many great stories and just his experiences were unbelievable. And I just wish we could have gotten more in. Luckily, he does make an appearance in our sequel. So there will be more Mel. We promise you there is more Mel on the way. You can never get enough Mel. I'm just going to say that. And with that said, Mel is out there all over the place. So by all means, um, you know, do do the research. Listen, listen to this podcast. Uh-huh. And uh, Mel's been a, a guest on Coast to Coast AM, I think, a number of times. And um, he's out there quite a bit. He's He's been very public and, and forthright with his, some of his stories uh-huh. on the reservation. And that's rare. That that doesn't happen quite quite a bit, um, or very much, I should say. So definitely check him out. Yeah, we get into some stuff with, with Mel about Mount Adams, which uh, is kind of for me, as far as like, if you want to go to a Bigfoot place that's going to make you feel like you're going to have an experience, definitely want to come out here to the Olympic National Forest and go for it near the Ho Rainforest or Forks, Washington, underneath uh, Mount Olympus out here. But the other place you want to go is Mount Adams. I mean, it just, it feels awesomely squatchy under there and unusual. And I've had strange stuff happen there. And um you know, Mel knows this place better than I ever could. He grew up underneath the uh, the shadow of Mount Adams. So we're going to talk about Mount Adams, talk about his experience out there. And we even get into a little bit of Brett and Jill's experience near Mount Adams, um, which was pretty unexpected. So without further ado, let's get into it with our guest from an undisclosed location in Everett, Mel Scott. On with us right now is Yakima tribal member and former forestry manager, Mel Skahan. Hello, Mel. Hello. Hi. How's everybody doing today? Great, Mel. We're good. Thank you. Thanks for making time for us here on uh, Flash of Beauty, a Flash of Beauty, the podcast. And uh, Mel, you're featured in this documentary kind of right out of the gate as... um, you know, an indigenous person, a tribal member of the Yakima Nation, talking about your experience from really as a child growing up, learning about the subject of Sasquatch underneath the shadow of Mount Adams. And um, I think it's a fitting way to, to start this documentary. But I mean, you've been involved with this community as well for quite a long time and some people don't really know who you are because you kind of stand on the periphery but you you know so much so talk to us first off i guess i'll just go off with the initial question here of uh, you know what it's been like to um you know be uh, a yakima nation i almost called you an elder but are you technically an elder at this point or what does it take to uh, be well, a, a, I, I, uh, yeah at, at the age of 55, I, be, I became an elder of the Yakima Nation, so I am 55 years old now. Yeah, and I mean, I, I should not, I should mention, though, that we just got done with a conference not too long ago, and this is really the first time I'd seen you at a conference in Yakima with other Yakima tribal members surrounding you. So let's just start there. Uh, as far as that experience of being a Native American and talking about Sasquatch, it's, it's a very rare thing to see. So Tell people about why that is. 
Well, the Yakima Reservation is 1.2 million acres, and uh, 750,000 plus is is timbered, and uh, about two thirds, or about a third of that, is also like wildlife range, and then uh, other acreage set aside for recreational purposes, or uh, a, like a do not touch area, keep it pristine, let it let it. Uh, manage itself so to say well we manage the rest of it and uh so that is where i grew up grew into my my great grandparents used to uh, take us up into the woods during the whole summer months uh, as we were growing up and my my great great grandfather would uh you know tell us and show us the ways uh, of becoming uh, an adult of being in the woods and how to, you know, how to navigate and how to, uh, how to kind of basically live the land that uh, was around us. And so as I grew up into a, a teenager, those teachings that I got for him after he passed were uh, a, a big, big deal for me because, uh, you know, a lot of people don't listen to their elders and what they have to tell you until you put yourself into a situation that's like, what am I do? What, what, what do I do? And then you think back and then you're like, oh, okay, I was taught to do this. I was told to act this way and present myself in a certain light. And uh, so growing up into that, eventually as I got older, they were you know, remembering the stories of Bigfoot that my great grandfather would, would tell us kids that were up there and telling us not to wander off stay close and if we heard heard them at night then don't don't go outside outside the tent uh he <laughs> what was funny about it was that you know him and, and my great grandmother Stell, his name was tony um used to stay in a small rv uh, prowler and uh us kids you know we got to stay outside in small tents and everything and we you know as kids you enjoyed it and, uh, but then hearing known animals, coyotes, elk bugling, you know, all this, all these other animal noises outside, then you would hear something that was not something that you were told to listen for, but it would, it, it would appear at night and, um, and we'd have questions and stuff like that, but kind of got quiet. But, and, and then as, as we, uh, as we, kind of grew into the continuous nights and throughout that summer of hearing these howls and whoops and wood knocks and everything, we were eventually told who uh, these people were that were outside. And uh, so that was the reason why we had to remain inside while they, you know, were freely to move about, live uh, uh, freely about what, about, you know, while we were there. Right. Well, with me here, of course, is uh, the director, Brett Eichenberger, and Jill Remen-Snyder in the background. This was your first chance to sit down with Mel and film him basically in his own backyard. Um, I'm not quite sure where you guys did the filming, but you did follow up on some of the things that Mel was talking about, including this place called Mount Adams. Now, Mel... Um, you know, and I know that Mount Adams has its own 
storied history of strangeness going on beyond things of Sasquatch. But uh, Jill and Brett, you had a chance to go there as well and have your own shared weirdness um, as well. So I don't know, talk a little bit about um, meeting Mel and uh, following up on some of the things that happened to you when uh, you went to his backyard. Yeah, so we've, um, gosh, <laughs> we've had all kinds of experiences near Mount Adams and um, actually recent experiences on the Yakima Reservation. And I don't know if Mel knows this or not. I'm deviating a little bit from your point here, Toe, but this is well worth mentioning. The last thing that we saw Mel was this past summer up at uh, the Yakima um, Sasquatch Conference. And we left um, pretty early the day after we were done um, with our engagement. And I think it was, what, Jill? It was about five o'clock in the morning. It was still easily dark. Easily five. Yeah, it was about yeah, five. Easily five. Um, we had to get back to, to Portland. And um, we were on the reservation and we were going up over one of the passes. I don't remember what pass it was, but it was, we were about at the summit. And <clears throat> I said to Joe, I said, all right, there's nobody on the road. It's dark. There's, there's a trillion stars. Let's pull over and kind of get a sense of the area and, and check out some stars. And so we did. And um, what we were outside of the car for maybe four or five minutes, maybe not even that. And we heard a wood knock in the distance. And it's just, it's one of those things, you know, it's a wood knock. You know, you just, it's that, that that sound. And so um, we're like, whoa, okay, that's weird. We got a little bit of the chills. And then shortly thereafter came the scent. It was like blowing in the breeze. And that just to, Brett, I just, want, <clears throat> I just want to jump in just to paint a picture. So where we were pulled over, <clears throat> there was a, <clears throat> along the shoulder, it was like, there was almost like a little drop off. And there were, there were trees kind of camouflaging like some cover, whatnot. And as I recall, Brett, the smell was coming, like if I was standing facing where we heard the wood knock, it was shortly thereafter coming in from about the 10 o'clock position from where those trees were. Oh, your mic, Brett. Oh, you're muted, Brett. Sorry. There you go. Cut that portion out. No, I'm kidding. Um, so yes, it was. that's right about where we were. Um, so anyways, long story short, that was our first experience on the reservation um, mm -hmm. with something. There was something going on there. I mean, I can't. I don't think we can definitively say it was our friend Sasquatch, but there was something going on there. And we certainly got a feeling that night or that early morning that this was a a storied place, just like Mel had told us. <laughs> well, right, what, I know. I, I I know. Excuse me. I I know the spot where you're talking about down Highway 97 on on um, Satis Pass, which is the reservation boundary at at the top there. And yep. uh, that my my story that I shared, my encounter that I shared with you about the hair collecting the hairs, was about uh, four miles to the east. Or if you were traveling southbound, it would have been on your left side. Going four miles down that ridge line is where I collected those hairs. Oh wow! Oh wow! Oh, that's very that's super interesting. And to refresh, and then, sorry, sorry, I was just gonna say. And to, go ahead, go ahead. And the end of into you know I 
I've been doing this for a long time. Um, there's also, I don't know how many numbers of uh, encounters from uh, enrolled members and non-enrolled members that I've collected from that that area that you were, you're you're speaking of now. Mel, when it comes to Woodnocks, um, what do you think's going on with that? Because you know, my sense is that maybe things aren't always what they appear. You know, Brett heard what I've heard before. It sounds like a Louisville slugger hitting a home run on the bottom half of a Doug fur. Do the Native Americans talk about something else going on as far as Woodnocks? Well, my experience with them through the, my career in forestry, we've heard the single knocks, we've heard two, three, four knocks, uh, and then we've also heard, uh, well, two, three, four knocks from one spot that you would hear uh, in a far off manner of ravine, hillside. Uh, you would hear repetitive wood knocks coming back towards the one, or you would hear them thinking that they were talking back and forth to each other. Uh, I kind of kind of associate those wood knocks to if there's one person out there, you're going to get a single knock. If there's two people out there, which usually there are working with me, and occasionally up to three or four, you'll hear three or four wood knocks come from close by, and then off in the distance, you'll hear the repeated four, um, and then or three or two, whatever the first one does. It's it's like a, a, a what do you what how do you put a, a, a text or a page to let you know that we have people in the area, and I've heard one that was way out of left field where we were um, in an area there were two of us and the time we showed up to this spot that we were working in it was like a woodpecker just bang 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 and he never stopped and you know you're you're, you're continuously hitting something repetitively just over and over you would get tired but this went on the whole three hours that we were there. And then when we walked back out to the road, it was still bang, 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 bang. And then when we started the vehicle up and, and turned around and left, we didn't hear it anymore. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, for anybody who hasn't heard it, it uh, it'll change you, especially when you know that the area you're in is cornered off and section off and you know, sound free for lack of a better word, except for that specific moment. And um, it really is a, a way to be initiated <laughs> into your own tribe for sure. Looking yes, back, yes. Mel, I, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say that uh, um, they've, they've also announced their arrival that way to maybe the ones that have circled around you. You think there's one, but there's always more than one. Right. And a few times one would announce itself and then uh, around us, we'd hear another one mm -hmm. or another and another, just single wood knocks. But when I hear them just do the first one, then I know they're there. How many, I don't know. And like I said, this has happened multiple times to me while I've been camping or in the working uh, in my forestry job. Well, 
So the spot that Brett and Jill were describing, uh, I don't know that area like you all do, but um, you knew it very specifically. Is that a hot spot area? Did they just happen to pull over to uh, stretch their weary bones in a hot spot? Uh, yes, I think that might may have been somewhere. I think it was October, November uh, that, that this may have happened. And I get a lot of reports from um uh, members up in that area that are hunting or and are working in the area that they've heard wood knocks or they've had that smell and i've had a few people because the, you know once you start climbing that pass then you start getting into a treed or forested area before that it's all sage sage land and so being you know in that cover for, for the, the morning hours or for the rest of the day, daylight hours, they can come out of there at night. And right next next to that area, we had some experiences in an area called the Devil's Pocket. And when we first saw that on the map, uh, we kind of always kind of wondered, why do they call this the Devil's Pocket? And then <clears throat> when people come to me with encounters or stories from around that spot, I was like, oh, yeah, you guys were in the devil's pocket area. Yeah, there's one part of the reason we pulled over there was that it just had this squatchy feel. And you're right, Mel, the, the landscape changes rather dramatically. I mean, it can it, it changed. It felt like it changed within about five miles as as we started ascending um, up, up Highway 97. Of course, we were heading south. Um, and we pulled mm -hmm. over to our right and, um, and you could see some peaks off into the distance from where we were pulled over. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a, a, a feeling in the air, you know, of course we're, we've become more, much more attuned to that squatchy feeling over the, the last few years as we've been producing these films. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know, but we definitely had a, uh, uh, an exciting conversation for the car ride home after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th that area is also popular for uh, semi trucks to pull over because there's wide areas along there, and some of them will, you know, report smelling something or something pushing up the, the cab or the or the the bed of the vehicle that they're in, and they would uh, when the forestry workers or other workers uh, that worked out in those areas would come across them, they'd pull them over and, and, and start asking them questions. And that's how I would get my stories about the truck, semi-truck drivers uh, resting for the night there. Wow. Very interesting. I've seen a lot of semi-trucks. I've traveled up and down 97 for other related um, business and whatnot a few times over the last couple of years and i know yeah i know exactly what you're talking about with the, the semis they're everywhere over there mm -hmm. yeah go ahead jill uh mel you know one of the things that you mentioned in the original interview uh that we did for a flash of beauty bigfoot revealed uh that we did not we we just didn't have room or it's all it's actually a whole other documentary if we were going to get into it but you talk about um in regards to um the the like the forestry land and whatnot um, on the reservation you talk about their the migration the seasonal migration and whatnot do you think like are the reports still accurate to to that that statement, like, are you still seeing, are people still reporting uh, the same sightings 
uh, the same time of year during like the different migration seasons? Right, right, right. Yeah, like, you know, you were all in the, the lower Yakima Valley for the conference this last year. Uh, a lot of my reports in the wintertime come from down in that area because they're coming down for foods. Um, the, the harvest, uh, I started getting a lot of reports in the lower Yakima Valley for the apples, for, for you know, for everything that is grown down in there. And I, I don't tell a lot of people this, but when you, when when you're taking a report of, of you know movement and everything, you always ask for the direction of travel, time of day. You know you get all, every, all the information out of them that you can. I mean, size and everything else is okay, but what I'm more interested in is movement. As a hunter, you want to know when somebody sees an animal that you you want to go out like an elk or a deer, and you say, "Oh yeah, I you know saw this elk. He was going this way, that way, that way." And then if other people have seen it, then you kind of know the direction of travel. And then that's where you kind of want to walk into that area and then pretty much well know where this, um, your target animal that you're hunting is going to be. So with, with Sasquatch, I was doing the same thing. And all the reports that I was getting of people that were seeing them, uh, like from, you know, as a God bark from 10 o'clock on up until one two o'clock in the morning they were moving from the south to the north which is off the hillsides and down into the lower valley and other reports that i was i was taking of people seeing them after say two o'clock three o'clock in the morning they were moving north to south back up into the highlands back up into the uh the uh, ridge lines and <clears throat> So I took it further and further and further and talked to the elders and everything. And they always told me that, you know, we migrated everywhere around the Pacific Northwest, trading, fishing, hunting, and um, collecting our, uh, our medicinal plants, our roots uh, at certain times when they were ready to be um, harvested. And <clears throat> So the same thing with Sasquatches is that in our area, in the in uh, within the reservation area, is that they were showing movement in the same same pattern down in the valley uh, from harvest time into late winter, and then in the springtime moving back up into uh, the fringe areas in timber so that they could still kind of move down in, in case they wanted to collect more food, and then as the season progressed from spring into summer, moving up higher to where uh, a lot of the huckleberry areas were and, and the rest of the animals moving from the lower elevation because of the depths of the snow and uh, migrating back up into their roaming areas. So the elk would, uh, so the, uh, the Bigfoot or Sasquatches would go back up in the high country again. And the last thing I put together was Mount Adams in the hot summer days. And this happened three times where we had vocalizations from the upper, the last of the treed areas up on Mount Adams where the snow depths were anywhere from, you know, two feet and, and deeper. And they would be up that way to, to remain cool, which I, I would go up in the high area in the wintertime or in the, in the summertime to, to stay cool. And, 
And so I started putting that together, two of them. I never thought they would go up that high on the mountain, but they, but they do. Wow. Um, so Mel, when we first interviewed you, you were early on in, in our, <clears throat> our documentary work. And we were still kind of forming an opinion or an idea as to who or what Bigfoot is. And, um, you know, we thought we had a good idea, but I think your interview, I think, was very pivotal for us um, as filmmakers turning into kind of sort of researchers. Because, and the reason why it was pivotal is because you described characteristics of Bigfoot and observations that you had made of them that we'd never heard before. And for me, that really started to flesh out the character of Bigfoot, if you will. Um, and it, it humanized them quite a bit. One of the stories that you told that really resonated with me was the story about how you discovered some tracks in the snow and how you started following them and some of the discoveries that you made about their behavior and who they were as you continued to follow them. And if you're listening to this and you've watched the documentary, I apologize that we didn't have enough time to put the story in because it was awesome. Um, and further on down the road, we, we want to make these interviews available in their entirety, but we can't do that until after the next film comes out. So anyways, Mel, if you could, if you could kind of maybe talk about that a little bit and, and some of the characteristics that you've discovered, um, including some of the curiosity of some of them and um, kind of the fun and caring nature that some of them have demonstrated, um, that would be, that would be great. As I've talked to many witnesses over the years and other researchers, um, the, the person that observes them the closest, and I, I, I always had the perfect job in order to do this. I mean, I spent 27 years, 26 years with the forestry program, the Yakima Nation, and then another eight, nine years with the Forest Service just on the other side of Mount Adams. and. Um, so I had the perfect job uh, to to be with them, and then also learn to keep my mind open of the different types of experiences that I was having. And what took it to the next level of watching uh, coming across them was these tracks in the snow. I was wearing snowshoes at the time with with a coworker, and we were sent out on a job that was about a mile away from uh, our travel the main travel road in and out of the reservation that was plowed so uh, semi semi trucks hauling uh wood logs back down into the valley uh, were constantly going by and so as we were working this area we're walking out to the area i started noticing uh, this track line in the snow and I was like, well, somebody else is out here because I, my snowshoes are, you know, long enough to support my weight so I don't post hole into the snow. And I noticed that the, the biggest track that I started seeing, and it was, it was big because of the sun. It was out uh, on the flats. So it was melting and it was, it was, it had gotten bigger. And I was just like, never thought of anything, just another person out there. And then um, as I got down over the edge, then the, the tracks started to shrink and then you started seeing toes in them. And when I started seeing this, 
I grabbed my coworker, brought him down to the spot. We looked at it and he didn't say anything and we both knew immediately what it was. And then I started tracking that one as it, as it went like Northwest, um, up the creek bed, up on the Southern slope of the creek bed. And I started looking at his movements as he was going through the trees. And what he was doing was, was that he was hiding behind a tree or going up to a tree. And if you look down at the ground, his left foot was on the left side of the tree and his right foot was on the right side of the tree. Like he was stepping back and forth, looking ahead. And then he left and then he went to the next tree. And he did this, he did this for a good quarter mile. And when my partner yelled out to me, he said he found another set and we started following that. And this, this trackway was not like the first one where it was just walking up the creek bed, not not worrying about uh, hiding from anything. So it's just a straight line uh, on the southern side of the creek bed. And then when we walked a little bit further, that's when we found the smaller track of a little baby that was about eight, eight to nine inches in length. And this little baby um, would leave the mother as, as I'm, so the big one was the father, the male, the medium one is the female, and the little one was the baby. And follow the mom, and then it would break away from the mom, go on the, across the creek on the upper other side of the of the creek bed on the hillside there, and just work its way through the small trees and everything, and then it would come back down, and then follow mom for a while, and then break away again and then go through the trees and then as i was following it it uh, there was this big log that was about two feet off the ground uh, snow covered and then there was another tree across it like a springboard and what this, what he did was he walked out to he walked on this little springboarded tree and then jumped on it and then jumped off of it and then went back down to mom and then they walked up to the creek and then he would do this every great once in a while, I was break away from her and just, you know, explore and come back. While father, the male on the uh, upper hill would um, keep an eye out ahead, make sure that nobody was ahead of him so that they, he could, they could continue free. So that, that was the personalities that I came across to show that if somebody or to go to great lengths to do this, you know, if it was human, um, you know, they had to put a lot of detail in the track way that they left behind for the protector, for the mother, and also for the child. And I followed these tracks for well over a mile and a half. And then um, my coworker, you know, we both got kind of got weirded out because we were further away from the truck. And uh, we were also in the deeper part of the canyon that we just decided to leave. And then when we left, I walked back a different direction than he did. And then that's when I found my first bed in the snow. And what this family did was push the snow out uh, of this of this area, making this little clearing down to uh, vegetation soil because you could see the Oregon grape, you could see the grasses, and uh, <clears throat> created these berms all the way around and it was about oh, probably about 30 40 feet long by about 
15, 20 feet wide, and it was all cleared out. And when I, I got up to the berm, and it was iced over. So I took my hand, and I, I rubbed my hand along that ice berm, and you could feel, you could feel where they had, uh, the body heat had, you know, iced it, and also you could feel the hair impressions uh, in, in that berm all the way around. I got to think of why would they put something right here so close to the road. And I heard a log truck go by and then I walked back out to the road and I looked back into the timber and you couldn't see it. You could, you, if you were seriously looking for it, you still wouldn't be able to see that there were three Sasquatches bedded down right there for, you know, for a very long time. And my idea of the whole thing was, you know, it's the only road. The only traffic going in and out. So you watch all the vehicles go in. You watch all the vehicles come out. Once they're all out, then you can move freely about the area. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you, Bill. You're blowing my mind here. I mean, I'd never heard that story before, but, you know, it seems to point away from them just being an animal. And we've talked, um, you know, in the documentary back and forth about what these beings are, I mean, maybe beings is the best word that we can use. Do the, do the Yakima Nation talk about what Sasquatch is and do you differ with that? Where do, where do you land with it? Well, you know, I, I, I've heard their stories. I've, I've, I've heard them tell me different things that, you know, you don't go looking for them. You don't go chasing after them. You let them be. Um, uh, rule number one is if you're in their area and you're collecting if you're hunting or if you're uh, collecting foods you know this is their home this is what they live off of we have to uh, drop what we're doing uh, everything that we've collected uh, right there and then leave it for them and then vacate the area so they can continue to live and i've always carried this on through uh you know up until you know until i die i will because I respect them that much because it's, it's a hard life. I mean, to us, our, our lives are easy because we have so many different tools that we could use to survive. We take you out to the woods, we drop you off of the woods. There's no way that you're going to survive because you're used to everything, electricity, fire. And if you can't create that out there, then you will not survive very long. Where these these people, you know, that, that, that is their livelihood. They, they've lived as they were put onto this earth and know how to uh, thrive. And I'm sure, you know, our airplanes and everything else are still freaking them out, but they come, they're, they're coming to the understanding now from talking to other people of how we travel and, uh, you know, what we do to to come out to the woods and that's the curiosity for them at every visit that every human goes out there camping you're bringing out something new you oh i got a new trailer you can do this i can do that i got a new car it does this it does that that's the curiosity for them is that they've never seen anything and up until eight years ago I don't think they, a few, most of them didn't know what magnets were until they started playing with our tent. And then they were there for hours playing with it. So for them to, you know, as for our elders to tell us that this is their home, it, it, it truly is their home and we've got to respect them in theirs. 
So <clears throat> Mel, with the, I with what you just said about us going into their homes, um, how, how what are the reports you're getting though? Like, what kind of interactions are people having on the reservation? with them i mean are they friendly encounters are they just chance sightings or are they are there reports of more aggressive like territorial encounters i wouldn't call it territorial um uh, i mean the, the the friendlier encounters of our folks that are going out to uh to be out in the woods uh you know uh, enjoying themselves those are the friendly reports they kind of increase intensity of the type of activity that you're you're going you're going out there for, you're going to go out there and shoot guns and everything. You're and uh, you're coming across them and and they come across you in an aggressive manner. Well, uh, that's not what they know. What guns do? I mean, I mean, talk to hunters and hunters point rifles at them and they drop to the ground. They know what they do. They know what vehicles do. You know and uh, and especially the logging companies on the reservation, they're up there removing trees, reducing their hiding cover, changing their landscape that they've they have known and crossed through for generations. And um, so, you know, the logging companies, the workers are the ones that get the most um, aggressive behavior out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, we get into that a little bit in the documentary with our Peter Byrne interview. I don't, I don't think he said aggressive, uh, but he did mention uh, a logging crew out in the Tillamook forest area. And there's certainly a lot of logging still going on in that area as well, including underneath the shadow of Mount Adams. And, um, you know, Mount Adams is a corridor for weirdness in general, all the way up to Mount Rainier and between to Mount St. Helens. I think Kenneth Arnold had his flying saucer debut uh, racing over the shadows there and seeing uh, UFOs and such. And my connection with Mount Adams is a little place called Eastetti Ranch. And um, if anybody's ever been to Eastetti Ranch, then you know where I'm going here. And I want to ask you, Mel, about places like that that claim that Mount Adams is a gateway that it is uh, more than just a mountain that is more than a dormant volcano if i'm not mistaken something else is going on there more mysterious than even bigfoot perhaps um talk to us if you know the story of mount adams from uh you know a yakima perspective of the history of mount adams and and the weirdness attached to it well you know when the the reservation uh, boundaries were created by our, our um, treaty signers. They were the ones that negotiated Mount Adams. They also negotiated the Go Rocks uh, and uh, all the river ways into the the finalization of where they wanted to be put. So, you know, the mountains for us are are like because they provide a lot of the water and also a lot of the weather patterns that uh, affect the area. For the um, the the weirdness of it, I mean, I've had uh, as I said before, I've had encounters of Bigfoot up there. I've I've finally, you know, came across this about twelve years ago, seeing multiple trackways up there, 
and also know that I know where Ixeti Ranch is on the southwest portion of the mountain. Um, but my feeling is is that you know when they see something flying to the north away from them and they go towards the mountain, there are a lot of deep ridges upon that mountain that they say that they there's a portal or there's a hole there. I've summited Mount Adams, I think five times now. And uh, I've, you know, I, I couldn't tell you if there, there is a portal up there or, or anything weird, but I, I've had seen uh, UFO activity in that area because you're higher up. Uh, you're you're out of the light pollution and you're able to see a lot clearer and i've seen multiple uh, uh, events happen either on on that trip on on the trips that i've been up there or on the reservation side where we had one come out of the atmosphere and i think this is this is the kind of the confusion of of the movement because what i've seen one night <clears throat> was a Cessna plane come around the north side of Mount Adams when I was on the east side. We had a big historical uh, fire on the east side of Mount Adams that I was taking pictures of at night. And uh, I heard the Cessna go over. And then as I'm watching the Cessna come around the mountain, coming out of the atmosphere way above it, and then practically right at its same level behind it, was this big white light and through the thermal uh, through the um, uh, gen 3 monocular that I was using it was green solid and kind of erratically moving back and forth behind it as it was trailing behind and you could hear that here's the Cessna go over the top and then to the to the east of us and then right behind it was this bright orb and it was following right behind it and i don't know if this, the airplane knew it was behind it but i got i think i got about 45 seconds of video of that that i could share with you guys at some point yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's a big yes. yeah question yeah. for you mel about that area um do you have any do you have any idea or theories as to why uh, this particular area you know i know there's some floating theories out there that volcanoes have you know there's a lot of ufos around volcanoes all over the world and and maybe the volcanoes have got some sort of energy thing going on but what are, what are your thoughts about why this area is so active well um, it's mainly roadless and you don't get a, a lot of people up in that area and, and the people that you do eventually get into the area are the ones that are reporting you know the the ufos or the, or the sasquatch reports and you know, i know on the west side there there is one parking area that's right around i think it's about seven thousand feet and that's that's it there's no other roads um within about three quarters of a mile to a mile uh, that go around the mountain. And then on the reservation side, on the Northeast quarter, you have a totally almost inaccessible area of the, the, the lava flow that I've worked in and I've, I, I dreaded working in and made the comment that I would not, you know, 
put my worst enemy through this torturous two or three days that I was in there because it was almost impossible to get around. But we do have Sasquatch reports in that lava flow on the northeast side of the mountain. And then to the west of that and to the north is our traditional uh, Huckleberry gathering grounds and where uh, I always get a lot of reports uh, in the summer uh, and into the fall. And I've had numerous encounters myself in these in these areas. And so being roadless and only backpackers, and I can tell you that a lot of the Yakima people are backpacking, backcountry people. So, um, um, you know, you get your horseback riders that go up and hunt the, you know, the, the larger uh, non-pursued elk in that area. So it's every great once in a while you get people that go up in there. It's the same way if you were to concentrate on the goat rocks. The goat rocks uh, on the northwestern part of the reservation is also roadless on the on the Yakima reservation side with a jeep trail that goes up into it. And I get a lot of reports out of there. And there are a few people that camp throughout the whole summer that have had interactions with them. And uh, I'm not going to share any of those with you because I was told not to. But um, there are interactions if you, uh, in that spot on, on the reservation side and also on the Forest Service side, uh, on the west side and on the north side. Mel, one of the questions I have for you has to do with um, trading. Uh, when I uh, had a chance to talk to some people near Chehalis, Washington, on a res- reservation um, in, um, I guess it'd probably be southern Washington area, uh, close to Vancouver, Washington, they were talking about active trading between Sasquatch and people on the reservation, things like salmon for tobacco, um, things of that nature, face-to-face trading. Is there anything, I know that sounds spectacular to a lot of people, but if these creatures or these beings or these people exist, then something like this, uh, I believe is possible. Is there any stories like that still coming out to this day of people that have contact, what I would call, you know, extended contact with them to that level? Well, um, um, I would say not that I I've heard continuously, but I I do do hear far away or second, third, fourth, fifth hand stories about that. And you know, I shared earlier that hunters when they go up and they know if they're in the area, uh, you know, they they have to leave the animal uh, or portions of the animal. And so every time I would go hunting, that's what my partner and I would do, is that it's so hard to chase down an animal uh, without a rifle, without being able to down it right away, uh, put hours of stocking into it to to get them comfortable. Um, So we would, when we would leave, we would leave uh, prime cuts of meat for them. And uh, so that, that would, you know, show our respect towards them. And I think all the food trading and all the, the, the trading and everything like that is, is, is a whole trust thing that they won't do with it, do it to you with you right away. You have to repetitively 
be in an area for them to know you, to know your vehicle, to know your scent, to to see you in order to trust and know that you you're only there for a short amount of time and then you're going to be leaving. And so I think that bartering and training system um, happened to us a couple of times where we would go out away from the vehicle and do our our hunt and then come back a couple hours later and then underneath the windshield wipers they always left us something something like a you know a feather we found a turkey feather underneath our windshield at one point and you could say that somebody may have put that there but we created our own little trail to get back into this spot and it would have been you know impossible for anybody to well i'm not going to say impossible uh, you know it would be very difficult for somebody to follow us follow us in to know that we were there so that type of training that we we have with you know myself with them is is out of respect and and and, and uh thanking them for allowing me to be in in that spot Amazing. Just real quick, did you say the turkey feather was underneath the windshield wiper or underneath the window? It was underneath the windshield wiper. Okay, the gotcha. The driver's side window. Wow. Okay. And it makes no, all the there's difference. There's no chance. There's no chance it was wild turkey inserting a feather from his own self underneath your windshield wiper. <laughs> uh, no, because this was this was a single feather, and it was uh, at the midpoint of the driver's side windshield wiper. I got it. It was a turkey. That's squatch. what I thought. Yeah. Mm. Turkey squatch. <laughs> hey, Mel, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> gobble, gobble, gobble. That's the new call. Um, <laughs> our guest today has been Mel Skahan. Um, I don't want to keep all your time here, Brett and Jill, before we let him go, any final questions? Mel, when are we going out in the woods? <laughs> Hey, um, you know, the, the zapping thing happened over uh, at Lake Quinault, so we could try to see if the, the female is still there. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm game. I don't know yeah. about these guys, but I'm let's up, I'm up let's, for adventure. Let's let's melt a little bit of snow, Mel, why don't we, and, um, and, and get up there later on this spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we've got some areas that we go up into that uh, currently have, you know, we we get repeated visits. And I never thought that was going to be possible when I moved off the reservation. But what I knew and and did over on the reservation while I worked camp, uh, brought it over this way. And the same the same um, ideas are are I'm being I'm finding in the areas that we're going into now. Well, this won't be the last of me either, Mel. I will see you um, at an upcoming upcoming conference. Mel Skehan will be uh, uh, speaking actually Friday before Flash of Beauty in Forks, Washington. Um, we're having the second annual Forks Sasquatch Days. If you're interested in meeting Mel and getting some firsthand knowledge of him dropping bombs, Bigfoot bombs all over the place. Come check it out in Forks, Washington. That's uh, coming up Memorial Day weekend in Forks. You can go to SasquatchTheLegend.com to come uh, check out Mel. Mel, I appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate you coming and committing to uh, Memorial Day weekend. We're going to have a lot of fun in the future. Well, I want to thank you, Joe, Brett, for, you know, making me, uh, coming to me 
and then allowing me to speak in front of you and sharing uh, my stories and everything else for for the uh, Flash of Beauty and its sequel. Our Thank pleasure, you. our distinct pleasure, Mel. You've, you've been a massive addition to our films and we can't thank you enough. All okay. right. Thanks again, Mel. We will uh, talk to you soon. Okay. We'll talk to you. Uh, talk to you all soon. This has been a Resonance Productions podcast. If you have questions, comments, or your own encounter story you would like to relay to the show, email us at bigfootrevealedpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're just discovering us, you can watch our documentary, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, on most major video streaming platforms. 